you asked the three of them, how close are fashion, cuisine, and diplomacy connected, or what is the connecting part of it? And and they pretty much all three of them said, well, it's about communication, mm. right? All all three are I got a way of. When you said that. I just really, really, it's true. But it's true. It's about communication. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And whether it's through fashion, through food, through diplomacy, and yes, it's more maybe more obvious with diplomacy, but the way. They talked about food and they talked about also fashion. It made a lot of sense. So I think that was where they all agreed that, yes, all three areas are important way of communicating with the world around you. Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. This episode is meant to recap in English what was said in the interview conducted in German with the French Consul General to Northern Germany, Valérie Lübken, the fashion influencer Britta Ahrens, also known as Mrs. Moyne, and of course, the star chef, restaurant owner and activist, Sebastian Junge, who hosted our event at his restaurant, Wolfsjunge, in Hamburg, Germany. To help me talk about what was said in the German episode and to add her take on things is my college friend, Miriam Vuchkovic. Miriam is an associate professor at Georgetown University, where she teaches in the Department of Global Health. Miriam and I studied together at the University of Kansas. While I was finishing my PhD in French literature, Miriam finished hers in American Studies. After our college years, Miriam spent quite a bit of time in the eastern and southern parts of Africa working on HIV prevention and developing programs around sexual and reproductive health issues. Miriam is originally from Germany, but she has a bilingual ancestry. Her mother is German, but her father was from Croatia. Miriam is married to a German man with whom she has three wonderful sons, and they live in the Washington, D.C. area. Welcome, Miriam, to the podcast. Thank you so much, Henriette, or Henriette, how I got to know you. Um, but now you're in Germany, and it's it's fascinating um, how our paths crossed and over, you know, now three decades, basically, since our um, days in Lawrence, Kansas. And it's such a pleasure to be here and to be invited. And I'm really excited. And I have to say, I very much enjoyed listening to the German version of the podcast. Yeah, I can't wait to hear what you thought of it. And I think we should try to go through it chronologically mm -hmm. and, and sort of recap what was said. So I began the interview by introducing the three guests, Valérie Lubken, who is a career diplomat and has held posts in Israel, the United States, Belgium, and Germany. Uh, Britta Ahrens, or Mrs. Moyne, who worked for a long time as a fashion designer for golf clothing. She had her own label, Brittigan, and designed and produced the golf clothing through her company. And a few years ago, Britta took a slightly different track and is now a content creator and fashion influencer. She's, she's very popular here in Hamburg and is known as Mrs. Moyne, <laughs> which is quite cute because in Hamburg, we greet each other by saying Moin. So she's uh, the Hamburg version of uh, Mrs. Hello. <laughs> and my third guest was Sebastian Junge, Mr. Wolfsjunge, who has worked in some of the fanciest restaurants in Hamburg, including at the 
Fairmont Hotel vier Jahreszeiten, where he completed his apprenticeship to become a chef. He has also spent time in Australia learning the many barbecue techniques there, and he has spent considerable time on farms and at bakeries in the Hamburg area, learning bread making techniques, for example. In Sebastian's restaurant, everything is Land und Hand gemacht, or in other words, regionally produced. Mm -hmm. uh, Sebastian believes in growing his own vegetables and having animals locally raised for his restaurant's kitchen. He places value on fair wages, fair treatment of animals, respecting the animal by using every part of its body. He makes sure that everything in his restaurant was locally made, uh, really from the candles to the dinnerware. Everything reflects a sense of sustainability and environmental consciousness. And my very first question asked these three guests to relate their particular field of expertise to and express their values about fashion, cuisine, and diplomacy. So Miriam, what are your experiences with fashion, cuisine, and diplomacy? And what struck you as particularly interesting in the responses of the guests in the German interview? Yeah, I really, um, I very much enjoyed, I think Valerie was the first one to reply. And um, it, it was nice to hear because she said, well, you know, um, fashion and cuisine is really a French tradition. She really talked about how both of these areas are important for diplomatie d'influence, she said, for um, diplomacy of influence. And I thought, She, she talked about how what an important role and instrument um, French cuisine and French fashion play in diplomacy. And she, um, she talked about how, you know, chefs are being um, so trained in Paris, basically, and then they do get sent to the different French embassies to really, really make sure that there is um, good food available. Um, and also she talked about how, for instance, the first ladies in, in France, um, from Carla Bruni to Brigitte Macron, are really um, important in showing off also French fashions. And so, so I like that. I was really um, impressed because I wasn't thinking necessarily that way, but for France, it really made sense to me. And on a personal note, I have to say the Georgetown um, the campus is just across from the French embassy in DC. And yeah, and they have um, a very good chef and a very good restaurant. And actually before COVID, the embassy was open to everyone for to go for lunch. And I even have a lunch pass for the French embassy, a real you know um, pass I can get into the embassy and use the restaurant um, for lunch. And it's it's fantastic. And you can book um, even tables and so on. Um, but the problem is that they closed it down, obviously, during COVID. And now they didn't reopen it to the public. So we were very disappointed in our department that we can't have lunch at the French embassy anymore. But, but um, so and what a great way to connect already through that. The yeah, I was when she said that, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I've I've benefited from the good chefs at the French embassies. <laughs> um, so I I have to say um, I'm I'm very much I, I love good food. I love cooking. I love world cuisines from everywhere. And um, so the cooking part I'm very or the cuisine part I was very interested in. I'm not so much of a fashion person. I would, I like nice clothes, but it's never been a big part of, you know, my 
I don't know, identity or what I'm interested in. The, the food part and the diplomacy part is definitely closer to my heart. <laughs> um, also from my background and what I've been doing in my life and what I'm teaching and working with and so on. Um, but but still, I yeah, talking about Britta, I think she was the second one and she was talking about how um, fashion for her is really an expression of personality and that what I liked what she said is that no matter what you wear, it, you other people see it. So it's part of communication. It's a way you communicate with your surroundings and mm -hmm. how people, even if you don't open your mouth, people will look at you and you make some kind of statement, mm -hmm. whether you're a fashionista or whether you just put on your sweatshirt and your jeans mm -hmm. and, and go out. But people see it and they think, sometimes think about it. And, and that made me a little bit, I'm like, oh, oh gosh, I should probably <laughs> pay more attention to it. <laughs> Because I I don't really I was thinking when I listened to her I was like what am I trying to say with my you know clothes and well it's your so, first point of contact right I mean it's it is it is exactly so I thought that was interesting as well um, and then you know Sebastian he he was it it was interesting because he talked a bit about his um, his restaurant and how you know. That what you just mentioned also how important the sustainability is to him and local products and all that but and he also said you know that food or cuisine and and fashion are both part of um, society and of you know people's consciousness and but he went very quickly into much more um critical understanding of those concepts and, and disparities. He pointed out, you know, very, very different disparities. He talked about sustainability. So, um, and he also said, you know, these are really elitist topics to discuss, cuisine and fashion in a world where so many people don't have access to either. And really, um, you know, with climate change and environmental issues, um, and that, that caught me you know it was it was interesting how fast he turned to to the political right and, i mean he is an activist right he's, mm -hmm. he's very very active uh, not just in his cuisine and in a food activist uh and so that's uh, if you remember my answer i i said oh wait wait i wanted to begin lightly we'll <laughs> come back to it and we do come back to this very point at the very end i just thought whew, let's have a little lighter yeah <laughs> but that was his his whole take, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. and I, I found I found it interesting because he said, yes, I mean, food and diplomacy really go together. And I think that is so true. No matter where you go in the world, um, whether as a diplomat or as a tourist or, or just as, you know, for work or anything, it's it's very much food is part of it. You know, you you eat with people wherever you are, you eat in local restaurants, you explore the cuisine and you you bond over food and if i remember you know our college days we oh, came... i'm glad you bring that up yeah <laughs> yeah please. our friends were from all over the world and we did these potlucks i remember at my place really with everyone whether we were from you know latin america from africa from europe everybody brought dishes and it, it was fantastic in that regard. And it really, we bonded over all those dishes. I remember that Absolutely. it was really important. 
and the the, so, the Latin American guys with their parillas and asados and and everything and yeah and the Ethiopian food and whatever and Brazilian food and we had so many different um, dishes. And I, remember, and I remember you making typical German dishes, your knudel, and uh, <laughs> I remember sort of yeah very traditional Indian uh, food, anything. Um, yeah. And and I think so for me, as I said earlier, you know the food part and the diplomacy part are. Definitely, um, I, I can see that connection very closely. But but how Valerie talked about fashion, I could also see, you know, that depending on your background, um, and, and I loved, well, that comes later, but um, we talk about your story about your mom's um, suit. And, and yeah, that's, yeah, let's, let's come to that in a second. Yeah. 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 So that was very nice. But I mean, going back to Sebastian, I thought it was interesting because uh, also since you invited me and I live, I haven't lived in Germany for the last, you know, 20 years, pretty much. Um, I I really, um, I thought about it, whether his attitude was different necessarily from what I see in the US. And no, I wouldn't say not. I think the these um, local products and the farmers markets and all the things, that's really, at least here in DC, that's also a big topic. In Washington, and so there are a lot of restaurants who who really only source locally and try to be more sustainable. Obviously, not all of them, but but it is certainly also a trend here to mm -hmm. raise that consciousness and to have the organic products and and all the, you know, everything that you see in Germany. Um, the only thing I realize every time I go to Germany is how much more expensive everything is in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, food and, and also restaurants and everything. So that, and he talked about prices later on as well. And, um, but it, yeah, so that was very interesting, but I thought in that regard, I didn't feel like it was so different from what's going on here, especially also at university campuses and the topics discussed and what we even discuss, you know, in global health, mm -hmm. I, I could see a lot of parallels with that. Mm -hmm. And that's why I thought it was so exciting to put these three guests together. So we have a diplomat who's looking at it from a very historic and developmental perspective. Then we have a fashion influencer who's really considering fitting in, uh, standing out this aspect of communication. And then we have, of course, the food activist who's going mm -hmm. to point out the social discrepancies and the social issues right away. So uh, yeah. it was actually very, very exciting to to have that from the get-go, this energy, this different energy from all three of them. It's interesting that you noticed that that, that came through to you as well. Yeah. yeah. So, so then in my customary Dr. J fashion, I decided to spice it up a bit <laughs> by asking the three interview guests and the live audience. We were recording in front of a, a live audience. And I asked him to engage in some time travel with me and to go back to the 17th century. I told the audience about Louis XIV, Louis XIV, and about how Louis XIV ruled France for 72 years. Uh, I told them about how he came to power when he was only four years old. And most people attribute the beginning of his rise to this godly status uh, to a famous dance he performed at the Belle de la Nuit of 1653, which established him as the Sun King 
uh, king ordained by the gods, a symbol of power, of light, and of all that is good. And throughout his rule, Louis XIV paid particular attention to fashion, cuisine, and diplomacy. He demanded, for example, his courtesans to maintain a certain fashion that made them spend their money on garments suitable to be in favor of the king instead of possibly spending money on going against the king. He threw lavish parties with exquisite food that flaunted his riches and made him an establishment that no one could hope to rival with. And he used diplomacy strategically to advance France's war efforts. Uh, for example, Jean-Baptiste Colbert was one of Louis XIV's most famous diplomats, known to have negotiated the establishment of Louis XIV's grandson, the Duc d'Anjou, as Philip V of Spain, um, as well as to have facilitated the negotiations leading to the Treaty of Utrecht and the Treaty of Rastatt. And after providing this little lesson in history, I asked Sebastian Junger to tell us what he would have cooked for Louis XIV had he been asked to cater one of Louis's lavish parties. And I asked Britta Ahrens to pretend she was one of the courtesans in the court of Louis XIV and to tell us what she would have worn to one of Louis's parties or to an audience with the king or to go to one of Moliere's plays with the king. And I asked French Consul General Valérie Lubquin to reflect on being a diplomat in the 17th century and to think about how her choice of food and clothing would reflect on her diplomatic duties. So, yeah. Miriam, how did you <clears throat> What do I remember? Yes. yes and fun. how did you... how did fun. You find this line of questioning, right? And what's I liked... I really know? liked listening to the case study, you know, to hear about Louis XIV, and um, it, that was fun. And then Sebastian, he, he, he was good. He took it quite seriously. He was like, okay, back then, people did not eat vegetarian food, probably. So he would definitely, since he wanted to know how many people and what would be, you know, the, all the logistics behind. And um, he was laughing because we couldn't really tell him. But, um, but he said, okay, it, what he would do is to use definitely, and I don't know how you would say that in English, ganz Tierverarbeitung. So he would use a whole animal like everything of the animal. And he decided that the best animal to use would be um, a pig. So basically he would um, use pork um, and do everything from scratch, you know, from hams to different, all different kinds of dishes um, for this lavish, um, you know, dinner, basically including probably appetizers and main dishes and, and everything you can think of. And then, um, I think you asked him probably what, what he would give um, to the servants. And so he said, well, you know, everything that's kind of left, I would do a bit big um, Eintopf, so like a big soup, you know? Eintopf is more like a thick soup, um, a stew kind of thing. Yeah, and um, so, and then you ask him also what he would eat. And he's like, well, you know, I think I would go with the servants um, and, and eat, eat that stew. But and, he, would steal, he would steal some of the sausages. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And the ham, he would try some of that. But um, 
but yeah, he was very true to his philosophy, you know, of using every part of an animal and and really not wasting anything. And so that was that was a fun answer and and really reflecting his personality and attitude. And then Britta, that was kind of surprising because she um, she really didn't really get into it that much. She said, "No, I don't. I don't think I would like to wear, you know, what was required. I would just." pick something I would feel comfortable in and that would underline my own personality. Now I'm getting older. I don't want to, you know, do what others expect of me. And I know you were probing her a little bit. Yeah, but you can't, you know, I mean, you're at the court and so on. But she didn't really take the bite that much. No, no. And I, and I was thinking sort of, okay, how long would she stay alive, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You, you said to her, well, you probably wouldn't stay a courtesan for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't abide by that. And um, I'm trying to remember what Valerie said. She talked about the fashion back then a little bit more. She pointed out very much that there were no female diplomats. I mean, that was uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. She was saying, well, you were a courtesan or you were just nothing. I mean, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she said that. And she talked a little bit about the style of fashion back then and so on. But then I remember you asked her or she talked about how important the choice of the right food and the right fashion is, you know, in diplomacy as well. Uh, but she talked about that they indeed, I mean, they do not get any um, guidance from Paris from from the government on how they should dress or, you know, what, um, and, and I know someone asked her whether she would get a certain allowance from, from the government to buy nice clothes because she has to be a representative, you know, of the government. And she actually said, no, that's not the case. And, yeah. and she also said when she was younger, she dressed very appropriate, like very conservative often. And, um, and now that she's um, been in the job longer and she's getting older, she's also a little bit more liberal or provocative in what she... Um, Willing to take risks. Yeah, more, a little bit more risks and on that side. So she talked about that. But um, yeah, and so female thing. diplomats back then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But one of the things that struck me in her answer is that she said, well, you know, Actually, it is uh, the inner value of a woman or a man mm -hmm. that should come through. So very much the a different take, you know, sort of from what we heard in the very first answer from Britta. This is the first your your first image, the first image that you mm -hmm. portray. Um, Valérie was very much saying, "Well, yes, yes, absolutely," but the the inner values the intellect the humor the personality of the particular person should be more important than just the fashion and she's a she's a very fashionable lady by the way so, mm -hmm. <laughs> so. <laughs> i've only seen pictures of her so oh she always I, looks so yeah but i think in some ways you know that comes especially as a French diplomat, you probably have a little bit more eyes on you than if you're a German diplomat in that regard. Oh, you think so? Fashion. I don't know. But that's what she said in the beginning, because France is so famous for fashion and cuisine Expected. and everything. Yeah, maybe. Mm. I don't know. Because, I mean, I've worked a lot with German um, diplomats over the decades and... Um, I, I, I guess, I mean, there are all kinds of things. But fashion was probably not very high up there. 
I think so. But, you know, clothing in Germany, the emphasis is always on functionality. So there's these very, very good, high quality garments or pieces of clothing against the rain for warmth, for comfortable boots, mm -hmm. for, you know, for riding your bike, for, you know, and less, I think, also in my experience, somewhat less on the flair or the expression of the personality. Yeah. <laughs> so so then we skipped forward a few hundred years to 1910 when Coco Chanel opened her first atelier in Rue Cambon and Coco Chanel's very person unites fashion, cuisine and diplomacy and I pointed this out. I also mentioned how Vogue uh, magazine recently reported on Coco's culinary preferences. Uh, Coco Chanel loved wine and caviar and actually used the two as her secret potions for staying young. Uh, Vogue also quotes Coco Chanel as saying that champagne was also one of her favorites, although she only consumed it on two occasions, when she was in love and when she was not. <laughs> And so this got a laugh from the audience. Then I went into telling them about how the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, the V&A of South Kensington, has been hosting an exhibit called Gabrielle Chanel Fashion Manifesto, which displays evidence that Chanel collaborated with the Nazi regime working as a Nazi agent. But interestingly, the exhibit juxtaposes these documents with evidence that Chanel actually worked for the French Résistance. And among these documents are also official governmental verifications that list Gabrielle Chanel as an active member of the Résistance. And all these political or diplomatic activities are displayed alongside the fashion that Chanel created in these years, her pink suits, her red velvet gowns, jersey dresses, the little black dresses, evening trousers, or the perfume Chanel Number no. 5. Chanel was a survivor who walked the line in order to assure the success of her company. She did not hesitate to use men to achieve her goals, whether they were Nazi officers such as Baron Hans Günther von Dinklager, or artists like Picasso or Jean Cocteau or Igor Stravinsky, all three of whom were also her lovers. Uh, Chanel also had a close relationship with uh, Winston Churchill, who, who even painted a portrait of her. So the V&A exhibit was opened in September of this year and will run until the end of February 2024, if any of the listeners would like to check it out. Chanel is an undisputed fashion icon. From the mystique and romanticism and flair of Coco Chanel herself, to the spectacular Chanel fashion shows, to the stores that even the most elegant ladies are willing to wait outside of, but where the sales assistants tend to your needs with refined cultural knowledge and the gentleness in their manners and service that is rare to find anywhere. I use the phrase Chanel c'est la classe. Right after that, I told the audience about another company, Made Auf Fedel. And this local atelier that is headed by Johanna von Frieling and Johann Ambacher combines the know-how and craft of the Fedler Frauen, the ladies from Fedel, the mainly migrant women who live in this area of Hamburg, 
with modern mechanical textile production. They can produce single pieces or mass produce according to the client's wishes. Uh, they help young designers try out their designs they make from prêt-à-porter to haute couture. And all this in a working class neighborhood of Hamburg in Fedel, where most of the inhabitants have a migrant background and come from Turkey, the Middle East, or Eastern Europe. Madeau Fedel combines traditional techniques and sewing from all these different parts of the world. And it is an ultimate symbol of true integration. Uh, it unites the traditions and cultural impulses of migrant women with today's Germany. And in my opinion, it serves beyond fashion, a powerful social need. But I didn't let the audience, you know, I didn't give them a question yet. I, I had to tell them about the suit I had decided to wear for the evening. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier. And so I wore this suit that was handmade by a Hungarian seamstress who made it for my mother right before we immigrated from Romania to the United States. And, you know, my mother had read all the fashion magazines she could get her hands on. She religiously watched Dallas, which was the only TV show available in Romania at the time. And she really tried her very hardest to design a suit that would be that she felt would be worthy of the U.S. She wanted to fit in, but still show pride in being Eastern European. She she wanted to make sure she would not arrive in the U.S. and look poor or, or inelegant. And the suit I had on for the German interview is what my mother wore on the Tarom, which is the Romanian uh, airline, the Tarom flight from Bucharest to New York in October 1984. And I have kept this suit and it has become my good luck suit that I have worn to pretty much every important job interview or occasion that was significant for my professional career. And after pointing out all this information and providing all this information, I finally asked my question, or rather a row of questions. I asked, how does Chanel compare to something like made of Fedel or to the seamstress who made the suit I was wearing? And how does the cuisine of a restaurant with Michelin stars surpass others? And is Sebastian Yoga's restaurant rather Chanel or, or made of fetid or where, where does he fit in? And, and how do we, where do we put home cooking in this whole, in this whole scheme? So Miriam, what do you think? So, I mean, what I remember, I, I think, yeah, first of all, I, I really, really liked, um, the whole segment that you gave your introduction about Coco Chanel, because there were things I didn't know about her and um, that was very interesting to me. And then also made of Fettel, I had to look it up and I looked at their website and it was also very, very inspiring to see. So both very nice examples. And I love the story about your mom's suit. And I was wondering whether I ever saw you in it. I Maybe I have, I'm, I'm not sure. So. I, I wore it to my to my defense for my doctoral dissertation. I, I, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a wonderful. It was such a powerful image. I thought about you know the importance again of fashion in that sense of of making a statement and wanting to fit in and wanting to belong. And so I think these, especially from migrant background and immigrating in the U.S. and um, 
I, I really liked that image and how important it was to your mom and how this has become a family tradition for you. Um, so that that was very powerful. And I, when you asked these questions, I know, I think Sebastian was the first one to talk about that. And I think he has a little bit of nature to reconcile, you know, his um, very fancy, very good, but probably also expensive restaurant with his very, own, very expensive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With his own self um, identity, because he said, well, he thinks he identifies more with made in fettle in a way because he feels like he's been, has a working class background and he the, his values he he feels much more related to the working class than to the elite even though you know now he's offering foods that most people cannot afford probably but that that was interesting and he that came, this, the comment came from the audience as well, but yes, but there are many social classes that would not even yeah. dare to walk into your restaurant. Yeah. yeah, and he answered to that. He said, well, yeah, I mean, granted, most expensive restaurants are for elites, but at his um, particular restaurant, he said, well, we try to offer, you know, lunch, um, a lunch menu that is um, definitely less expensive, that makes it more accessible to people with, with less um, financial means. And he also talked about projects they are doing. So like in, in terms of making good food more accessible to, to the masses in a way. And then I think it was Valerie. She talked about how Chanel over the last 20 years has really changed as a company and how they have become much more socially conscious and that they had, for instance, a, I think, it, I don't know if it was a fashion show, an event in Dhaka and Senegal, and that they have really started working with designers there and with um, over, you know, long-term development projects in Senegal and that she was, she sounded very proud of it as, you know, a French diplomat. She, yeah. um, how Chanel is actually using its clout and its um, reputation for, for really for the good of um, communities around the world at this point. And has definitely developed what you would call social corporate responsibility and an interest in global development issues. So I thought that was very interesting. She pointed that out. And um, and then I think Sebastian also talked, and maybe Britta, I don't know if it was Sebastian or Britta, maybe Britta, she talked about how fashion, making nice clothes and good food is, is a craft. It's really, and she talked about, it's so important to really, really um, maintain the craftsmanship behind all those things that, that we, we shouldn't fall prey to, you know, cheap food and cheap fast fashion. And she was talking about how important it is to maintain high standards in craftsmanship, whether it's in cooking or in making um, clothes and how everything right now is really too cheap on the world market and how, you know, for food and for fashion she didn't really like this distinction necessarily in, in haute couture and, and haute cuisine and low, you know, low food, low fashion. But she said that we definitely have to become more conscious about that good products, whether it's in fashion or in, in cuisine, cannot be cheap just mm -hmm. by definition, because it takes a long time to and good materials, whether it's good food or good well, ingredients first, or so. The first yeah, time she talked about that came from someone in the in the audience who is from the textile industry and mm -hmm. she talked about for example sewing beads onto ah. 
them to yeah. put things like that. It's a craft that's getting lost. Mm -hmm. uh, and Britta talked about how she, when she had her label, when she was designing these uh, glove clothing, she really wanted to use good materials. And I don't know if you remember this one example where yeah. she a young yeah. assistant to where they yeah yeah loved the cotton and the cotton products and the young assistant was absolutely uh, baffled by how long it takes to process it and how long and how complicated and expensive it is to actually you know come up with these organic garments and um yeah 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 it's um yeah and that it's impossible basically to if you buy a jeans for a child she said for nine euros yeah it's not possible to make it for nine euros. So there's something wrong in the whole, um, you know, value chain there. Something is amiss. You know, the people who make it do not get paid. And there must be a lot of negative environmental impacts of this fast fashion and so on. And so I think that was very interesting and, and fit well with Sebastian's arguments from the start of the podcast, right? Um, where he talked about how important it is to to have um, much more social and political consciousness when it comes to what we eat and what we buy and so that that was a big topic and, um, how, do you, and, and how do you feel because this is right up your right up your alley yeah yeah um i mean we i've taught for instance for a few years um a class that we, we offer for our juniors in global health have to take that 30 year students for the Bachelor of Science in Global Health at Georgetown University and it's um, globalization and health. And we talk about fashion for instance. It's one of the topics we cover and we, we look at the working conditions in, in especially we looked at Bangladesh as, as examples and, um, and other places in um, Vietnam and so on where some, some well-known examples, you know, of, of bad working conditions simply and, and really, really long hours and no pro working protections and from child labor to, to just really bad um, health, health impacts. Um, but then we also talked about, and the students didn't know that very much about the environmental cost, really, and how fashion is one of the biggest polluters, actually, mm. um, and, and, and how, you know, us um, and especially also students, you know, that age group going to chain stores that have, you know, the fashion every month, basically. The latest fashion. It, yeah. yeah, the latest fashion. And it's very cheap and you basically throw it away afterwards because mm -hmm. they don't want to wear it. It's not cool anymore. And so, so that's something we teach um, as part of global health, actually, because mm -hmm. of the negative impacts on, on individual health when it comes to working conditions, but also on environmental health. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so that rang a bell and also nutrition, it's the same thing. I, I teach, um, I don't teach like clinical nutrition, but we talk, I teach about non-communicable diseases and the rise of obesity and, you know, and malnutrition, whether it's over or under nutrition, these topics and it, um, you know, the negative impact of livestock raising and, and so on um, from a health perspective. Uh, individual level, population level, environmental level. And so these topics, they all rang a bell, obviously. It's a little bit different perspective, maybe, that we take in global health, because it is focused on the health aspects, but it really all overlaps in many regards. 
Mm-hmm. And these topics are, yeah, they're relevant from a health perspective, from a political perspective, from a social perspective. So there's no real division there, I would say. It's very, very important topics. And yeah, it was interesting to listen to all of them and see them coming from very different backgrounds, um, whether it's fashion or cooking, you know, cuisine um, or diplomacy, but that the issues are the same. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, that diplomacy really then has a role to mitigate all this because mm. um, that's the where the politics come in right absolutely absolutely and then that kind of led into you know who can make the biggest difference and there i introduced a french proverb you know who, who is supposed to make the b- biggest difference who's supposed to set the example who can lead us in the right direction and I mentioned this French proverb called noblesse oblige, which is in German translates into adel verpflichtet. And and actually I looked it up because the proverb doesn't exist in English. The only thing that I could find is that it's a famous line, you know, that Spider-Man's uncle says, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, But then we went into what this proverb noblesse oblige uh, actually means. And it means that if you have it good, you need to give back to the world. If you enjoy a position of power or wealth, you owe the world. You have to fulfill certain social responsibilities. You're expected to behave with more social consciousness uh, and take over more social uh, responsibility. So it is up to the wealthy, the powerful, the smart, the elite to direct such movements. And I tried to give two examples of where I think this type of movement is happening. I also mentioned that there are many companies and many individuals who abide by this sort of unwritten rule of noblesse oblige. But then I mentioned Chanel again, because I think it's, uh, I really agree with with Valérie. Chanel has been developing in an absolutely incredibly positive direction. Chanel organizes, for example, Les Rendez-vous Littéraires, Rue Cambon. I was absolutely surprised to find this when I discovered it. And these are literary meetings in the original Chanel Atelier, which I was actually fortunate enough to visit uh, about a year ago. This is an an initiative that was started by Virginie Viard, who followed Karl Lagerfeld as creative director of Chanel. And in these rencontres, the host Charlotte Cassiraghi interviews various authors and personalities from the area of literature. So Chanel uses the power of Chanel and the interest people have in fashion to promote literacy and to make reading sexy and and desirable. And I think that's that's absolutely admirable. And another example I I mentioned was the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. I mean, you've been there. It's, It's really one of my favorite museums in the whole world. It's an encyclopedic museum that is meant to reach and serve the larger community of the Kansas City metropolitan region. But in addition to bringing arts to the public, they also organize naturalization services uh, to make the new immigrants feel like they have a place at the museum and in the artistic community. They conduct community surveys to get an idea of what political and social issues interest and concern people in the greater Kansas City area. I mean, this is a museum conducting community surveys 
And then based on the answers, they organize discussion sessions and conferences and workshops around this topic. I'm a huge fan of the director, Julian Sugasagoitia, who is Mexican. Well, he's of German-Mexican ancestry. He's married to a French lady. And he has, I mean, he's the former director of the Museo del Barrio. Really, really interesting man. He has really made the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art a place where people can meet and discuss where they can talk about delicate contemporary issues, where political and social classes can mix, and, and really where cultures from around the world are represented and, and respected. And what I wanted to ask my three interview guests was, how intertwined are disciplines? Um, I mean, some would say that it was, I remember telling my husband, I'm honey, I'm going to do a, an interview on fashion, cuisine and diplomacy. And, you know, he's, he's a scientist, he's a doctor, right? So he, he just kind of looked at me like, uh-huh, okay, you go ahead and do that. So <laughs> some people might, might, might say that it was quite a bold move on my part to do a podcast episode that combines these three areas, but they are interconnected and many disciplines are connected. So how can we share social responsibility across professions and, and fields and cultures? So Miriam, what's, yeah. what's your take? Yeah, I, I mean, I think one, one thing that really came out and especially from Sebastian, um, but the others as well, and I know some people in the audience also added to that in the latter part of the podcast, how important education is. And your example about Chanel and the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art both go in that direction, you know, that a lot of the, let's say, bad choices people make, whether it's about, you know, fast fashion or fast food are based on also not knowing better often, not having the knowledge how damaging this can be, you know, for the body and for society and for, you know, for basically the environment. And, and that there's a lot of what Chanel and the Nelson's Atkins Museum of Art are doing is, is exactly up that alley, right? The, the really education um, on raising consciousness for a lot of the issues. And the um, audience also, I think, raised that, that it's, it's really, in Germany, it has changed. You know, people that you can get many more vegetarian or um you know, organic foods and even even the McDonald's has these options now. But but it was also pointed out that, you know, it's not obviously just education. It's also the social determinants, um, what what I would say social determinants of health, you know, where people live and work and um their their access and their opportunities because education is one thing. You might know what you should eat or what is healthy, but you might not have either physical access or financial access to these products. And so, so it's not just educating people, but, um, and I think Sebastian talks, talked about that, how important policies are and regulations and making, let's say the healthy choices and, and environmentally friendly choices, the easy choices as well. And that's something where diplomacy and politics comes in, right? Because it's not just a thing you can do as an individual. Yes, you can do a lot as an individual, but it really depends on much more on societal level, if you can make the better choices. Mm -hmm. And so, and he talked about, you know, that there really needs to be a change in consciousness, why you don't have to necessarily buy berries and strawberries in December or January in Germany, right? You should buy 
what's growing at that time of the year. But if it's available at the supermarket and if it's cheap, people will buy it, right? So it's not, yes, you can put it on the individual, but it's also, it's much more on a higher level where you need changes. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's so many of these images that we get from bigger companies, from social media, from movies, you know, how it's portrayed. One of the things that Sebastian mentioned was, you know, with the price of a currywurst. So he was talking mm -hmm. about something sort of fast food. And he was saying, yes, but fast food is not cheap. Mm -hmm. You can get for that amount of money, you can buy a bag of organic potatoes and you take your little piece of butter and some of your herbs and you can feed your entire family. So it's also these images of, you know, what is portrayed. And that's why I think this connection of Chanel to literacy is so important, so significant. A lot of young people and perhaps also younger kids from lower income families or different uh, social milieus look up to these brands and look up yeah. to these, these images, these iconic you know, images of what we are supposed to seek, you know what I mean? That is the ultimate symbol of success. And, and that has to be, that has to be changed, you know, um, where, where these symbols also reflect the same message or try to convey the same information. Valerie talked about it also. It was, it was nice. She talked about her daughter who yeah. studies fashion in Paris yeah. and that her, and in the first moment you think, oh, okay, she's studying fashion. But then she said, well, her daughter is so conscious about what <laughs> Valerie buys, you know, about the CO2 that was uh, basically used um, while, while the fashion was made. And she has really convinced Valerie to buy a lot of designer labels secondhand. And yes. um, so that was nice to hear that, you know, even, even in the younger generation, the people who study fashion have a very different consciousness about it than maybe our generation 30 years ago. I have friends who studied fashion and I'm not sure how much they, you know, 30 years ago learned about these things while they studied fashion. But it seems to be very much a change of consciousness there. And there was, you asked the three of them, you know, how close are fashion and, and cuisine and diplomacy connected or what is the connecting part of it? And and they, they pretty much all three of them said, well, it's about communication, mm -hmm. right? All, all three are I got a way of... I said that. I just really, really, it's true, but it's true. It's about communication. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And whether it's through fashion, through food, through diplomacy, and yes, it's more, maybe more obvious with diplomacy, but the way they talked about food and they talked about also fashion, it made a lot of sense. So I think that was where they all agreed um, that, Yes, all, all three areas are important way of communicating with the world around you. Absolutely. So at the end, we circled around and we got serious, like Sebastian wanted to get it serious at the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and at the very end, uh, the discussion turned really more political. And we reflected on how there is war in Eastern Europe and in the Middle East and how there are catastrophic reports about climate change and on how the world really seems to be falling apart. And many groups are in discord. People seem anxious. And we asked ourselves whether this was a time when we could talk about fashion. We asked ourselves, um, you know, could we discuss fine cuisine in such times? And was there still enough time to manage our world through 
diplomacy. And Miriam, I'll let you recap again and tell us yeah. about your take on it as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, I, what was nice, to, because, you know, your introduction about the current state of the world, it, yeah, it is pretty bleak. And it, one could despair and say, okay, maybe we should have a podcast about the situation in the Middle East and not about fashion and cuisine and diplomacy. But I, I really like their answers and it, it made me feel better too, because Sebastian was saying, yes, absolutely, we can talk about these issues, especially though also about um, conscious consumption, you know, about really um, how can we enjoy and consume but but also do it in a in a more um, sustainable way but he also said it's important to have you know to enjoy the beautiful things in life and and cuisine is definitely for him a big part of that and it's good food is what makes life more beautiful and more bearable and so for him that that was still his he really was affirmative about that and then Brit Britta also said that um, she said, yes, we have war, but I'm not the war, you know. Um, and, yeah. yeah, and I thought it was interesting. She said, you know, I, I, it, there's so much bad going on that I'm consciously following the events and the news, but I need to, to have time to, to spend on beautiful things and that, you know, just that make my personal life better in, in a difficult time. And so that was important. And also, Valerie said, you know, yeah, it's it's hard as a diplomat right now. It's really hard and things move too slowly. And she wishes, you know, for peace um, and for um, ceasefires and, and so on. But but she said, well, diplomacy has to go on and we work on it every day. And um, so all three of them were like, absolutely, we can talk about these things. And it doesn't mean we forget what's going on in the world, but it also means that there's hope for more beautiful things and we all need also outlets for yeah to feel good about ourselves and our lives even though there's a lot of negativity around and I, I agree with that mm. I have to say. Mm. Miriam thanks so much for reviewing the episode with me and for giving me your thoughts and input any last words that you'd like to add anything that maybe you'd like to say in addition to what has already it been said? Well, first of all, I, I really appreciated listening because that's not usually what I listen to, right? I would probably listen more to um, something about uh, global topics, health, and and um, about the well, the, you know, the world situation, so on. So it was it was really nice and to reflect on because obviously in in everyday life, um, yes, food and fashion and this is very important for everyone. It's what we do every day, decide what to cook and what to wear. And it's it's really a big part of our lives. But then also um, it, it inspired me. I mean, especially Sebastian, I was thinking more about also what we consume. And I know you said that in the podcast as well, you know, how as, as busy moms with three kids and working full time and you go to the supermarket and sometimes you just, you pick and, oh, this is cheaper and we buy it and not as conscious as Sebastian probably wants us to be. So I thought that was also a good reminder of maybe changing my own behavior in, in some areas. But then again, also on a more global level, how all these topics really intersect and how I also feel happy that we are covering, I covered 
a lot of these topics with my students from a little bit different angle, but it, it was really, it was a good reminder how we all share the same, you know, issues and responsibilities. And it, it was just a nice time spent listening to them. <laughs> Very much appreciated. Well, thank you so much. Be before we go, I'd like to also thank my dear friend, Jane Hermstedt. I think you remember her for her help with the research on Chanel. And uh, I'd like to say to my to my faithful listeners out there, I'm listened to in over 100 countries uh, around the world, which is which is a particular point of pride for me. Thank you all, all the listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Miriam, again, thank you so much. It was so great catching up with you. And it's it's been so interesting and exciting to hear how, you know, what, what was important to you and what you took out of the episode. It's been really, really, really exciting uh, reviewing it with you. So thank you so much. Thank Be you well. so much, Henriette, for inviting <laughs> me. That was fun. <laughs> Be well, everyone. This is Dr. J signing out.